Let's again direct our attention to the Psalter, Psalm 12. You'll notice as you look at the heading of the psalm that it contains the words according to Sheminit. And we saw this at the beginning of Psalm 6, as you may recall, and we noted then that this was probably an indication that the psalm was sung with the accompaniment of an eight-stringed instrument. One other parallel between Psalm 6 and Psalm 12 is its imprecatory nature. We had a hint of this last week in Psalm 11, and we noted again how important it is and how it is in no way contrary to God's desire for us to love our enemies that we call upon Him and with regularity for Him to work a sense of His justice in the face of whatever threatens His people for His glory and for our good. And today we come to the matter of words, but more than that, actions that flow out of words. Another way to look at it would be to ask, what are the words that characterize the eventuality, once they're spoken, of the actions of the faithless? What we have in Psalm 12 is the emergence of our God through the purity and perfection of His revealed will to give us a sense of hope when it feels as though we're losing in the world. And perhaps we just don't have the strength and the energy to keep going. We've already noted in worship and we've sung in these hymns how it is that there are many obstacles and we sometimes feel weary. Luther calls us to not rest on our own strength, saying that if we in our own strength did confide, our striving would be losing, as we sung moments ago. But sometimes even when you're not relying on yourself and you're convinced that you really are relying on God, it feels as though you're losing anyway, doesn't it? And God comes to us in this psalm, like all the others, and He ministers to our emotions. And that's important. I think we need to remind ourselves of that. We in the Reformed tradition have a knack for downplaying emotions. John Calvin called the Psalms the great anatomy of the parts of the soul. And that's revealing. Some of my best friends are doctors, and I remember in their medical school days, they would have these tomes, these thick books on human anatomy, and they had to learn right down to the cell every part of the human body, or they wouldn't be good physicians. They had to know it. What God gives us in the Psalms is a great book, a big book, that we may know something of the anatomy of our own feelings, that like our minds and our wills are fallen, but nevertheless they are real. We must be instructed in how to deal with them aright, how to process them, and how to have hope in the face of great opposition. So to that end, let's now turn our attention to Psalm 12, verses 1 through 8. For the director of music, per usual, according to Sheminit, the Psalm of David, Help, Lord, for the godly are no more. The faithful have vanished from among men. Everyone lies to his neighbor. Their flattering lips speak with deception. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and every boastful tongue that says, We will triumph with our tongues. We own our lips. Who is our master? 
Because of the oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times, and protect us seven times. O Lord, you will keep us safe and protect us from such people forever. The wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men. This is God's word. May he write its truths irremovably upon our hearts this day. Let's again look to him in prayer. Lord, this treasury of the Psalms is something that we've often neglected. Perhaps we've heard more familiar ones read publicly at funerals or on various occasions, but there's so much here that we've neglected. I fear that Psalm 12 falls into that category. I I pray that as we open it today that, that you would speak to us, that you would reinvigorate us in the face of what comes against us in this fallen and sin laden world. For you are our great God and King and no one has mastery over you. Help us unto a deeper understanding of this today so that our souls may be strengthened and we may find respite and restoration. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. If you were here last summer when we looked at Psalm 8, you may recall that I made mention in that sermon of a man named Dr. Peter Jones. Dr. Jones is someone with whom many of you are familiar. He's a teaching elder in the PCA. He's done many things in his ministry. He was a New Testament professor at Westminster down in Escondido. And somewhere along the way, as a native of Liverpool, England, he took an interest in what he saw as the moral decline of America. And a research interest of his became the effect of the occult and paganism on the church. And his writings are worth their weight in gold. To my knowledge, as I indicated last summer, he's the only Presbyterian and Reformed scholar that has tackled this issue. And he's just gone deeper and deeper into it. He's now 76 and he's traveling all over the world talking about the, the influence of paganism and expressly Eastern thought, and pantheism and the like, upon the church, how this has seeped in. And it's really remarkable because you sit there, you, you think you know something about this, and you listen to him and you realize how much you don't know and how insidious, how subtle these negative effects upon the church are. And so I'm thankful for his ministry. He started the nonprofit that he called the Truth Exchange. And, of course, he bases that on the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 1.25, where Paul says that men had exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. And this is what he is attempting to deal with in his ministry, lest the church be harmed further by these things. And I attended one of the conferences at which Dr. Jones gave a seminar about 10 or 12 years ago. It was at the time where the popularity of the Da Vinci Code was skyrocketing, and the movie had come out with Tom Hanks, and everybody was reading the books. And Dr. Jones 
gave a hair-raising analysis of the egregious errors of Brown's thinking. And he noted afterwards in the break to a group of us who were speaking with him that he had challenged Dan Brown to more than one debate and that Dan Brown kept turning him down. And I could see the disappointment on Dr. Jones's face. And he said, yes, he won't debate me, but then he doesn't need to debate me because he's winning. That is, in the eyes of men in the world, what he had to say was so much more popular than what Dr. Jones would have countered with. And you, you, you could see the, the, the sense of melancholy about that in this, this great scholar and this great servant of the Lord. Psalm 12 is here to help us in the face of those times when it seems that the worldling is winning. And and don't we feel it? You press on. You labor for the Lord. You labor in prayer. And it seems as though kingdom progress is much like a leaky faucet, just dripping, drip, drip and not the floodgates of kingdom establishment coming forward. What do you do? What do you say? Well, here we have hope and strength, I believe, in life and in service to God given to us when it seems that the faithless are winning the day. Now, I've extracted three points from this. The Psalms are somewhat difficult to distill down into main points sometimes. When you're in the poetry, it's very difficult to exegete and then present in preachable form something seriatim or, or chronologically. We, we put the numbers in the verses in the Scriptures. Sometimes that doesn't serve us that well because it puts in our mind's eye that this pattern of two follows one and three follows two, and so therefore that's the, the route that the argument is taking. But sometimes you have to go a rather circuitous way to unpack the meaning. That's what I've done today, and I present this in three distinct realities that I believe will help the faithful amid the false words and actions and disobedience of the faithless. The first significant help for us is found in verses 1 through 4 and verse 8, and that is a prayer to exclaim. Secondly, we find in verse 6, in light of the reality of verse 5b, a perfection to embrace. And then thirdly, in verse 5, before the reality that he expresses in verse 7, we find a provision to expect. And so that's the path that we're going to take. We have a prayer to be exclaimed, a perfection to be embraced, and a provision to be expected. Now first we look at the matter of the prayer that David exclaims and thereby calls all who would hear this song to join him in doing. He offers a prayer here, but in order to understand that aright, we must spend a few moments looking at why it is that he is offering the prayer and what it is that is troubling him. And this is really interesting. I was thinking about this this week in light of our Sunday school lesson 
last Lord's Day, for those of you who are here, and Pastor Randy drew that distinction between the visible and the invisible church, that in Israel, as God's body politic, you had those who truly trusted in Him and those who did not. And we see this today. We know that there are the faceless among the pale of the visible church. The invisible church are those circumcised hearts, those regenerated people that we cannot see because we can't see the heart. The only visibility to the kingdom is in the visible church, the assemblage of those gathered in worship services like this who represent the people of God. And it seems that what we're dealing with here is the reality of many of those within the covenant community of God who have left it and have joined ranks with those who are faithless. But they might still be existing somehow within the walls of the covenant community and causing trouble for God's people. You've heard it said that the most wounding of injuries come from friendly fire. I remember when I graduated from seminary and burst forth into ministry with great zeal. I remember thinking, yes, I'll be opposed by the world. I never expected to be opposed by those within the church. But it happens all the time. The reason I say that is that when you look at the language that he employs beginning in verse 1, he says, for the godly are no more. And the word we translate godly there is the chassid. And I noted before last summer as we were looking at a previous psalm that this is covenant language that speaks to the covenant faithfulness or the covenant response of God's people to His chesed, His covenant faithfulness. And what he's telling us here is the covenantally faithful, i.e. those who once bore the appearance of faithfulness, are no more. Now, he's using extreme language here, as we often do when we, we describe something so exasperating and, and so dominating that we'll use terms like everyone or all and so forth. He, he says the godly are no more. It's not that there aren't any godly, but it seems that they're, you see, losing the day. The covenantally faithful are no more. They're gone. The faithful have vanished from among men. That word faithful there is a plural. It's the immunim, and it refers to those in the assembly of the faithful. So he's using language here that is precise terminology to describe the, the utmost of the faithful having gone in among men, and they've adopted the ways of men, and it's as if you've turned around and you look in that direction and you expect to see some distinctives, and you don't. The faithful have gone and they've become so much like the faithless, you can't recognize them. You can't see anything. That's why he uses the term we translate vanish. Poof! They're they're gone. Where are they? They've adopted the ways of the world to such an extreme that they've gone out from us, to borrow John's words from 1 John, and we don't even recognize them anymore. I mean, you'd think they'd have some some residue of faithfulness on them, but they don't. They look just like the faithless. And then he goes on to give us the four distinct characteristics of the verbiage of these people, that is, those who have communicatively abandoned their adherence to God. First of all, notice, beginning in verse 2, he calls them liars. 
And again, uses sweeping language. It seems as though everybody speaks to his neighbor and lies. Now, the word we translate lies here is not exactly like that which we think of when we use the word lie. We normally think of the the speaking of a non-truth or something that's, that's false or the bearing of a false witness. This word here actually means empty. And so what he's saying is, Those who have gone out and have vanished from among men, they speak with a vacuous kind of language, an idle chatter, much like that that Jesus says all men will give account for in Matthew 12, 36. Empty talk. And as you look around in our world where it seems like Christians are losing the day and pagans are winning, don't you catch this when you eavesdrop, which is what you're not supposed to do, but we all do it anyway, and we claim, well, they just had a loud voice, what my colleague Ted Neal says, ear hustling. Do this sometimes when you're in close quarters, and you will hear people speaking, and the lack of the substance is stunning, the vanity of it, the profanity of it. It's it's happy hour talk. It's what Dr. James Boyce called cocktail party speak. It holds nothing. Well, that's where we are, is it not, as a people, as we look around us in the world. Secondly, he mentions flattery. Their flattering lips speak with deception. Don't we love flattery? Whom among us has not at one time said, or at least thought, flattery will get you everywhere? Just about all of us, we have some gift or some admirable quality that could, in our estimation, rightly bring forth the praise of Ben Flattery. Buttering up. It's been said that man is the only creature when you pat him on the back, his head swells, that he can't get through the door. But this is not a a good thing. This is not something to win people for noble purposes. No, there's an ulterior motive to this kind of flattery. We read in Proverbs 29.5 that the one who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. See, there's a, there's a trap here. And this vacuous speech is so empty precisely because faithless men communicate in such a way as to attempt to win the favor of others for their ends. I used to watch people who were really smooth talkers. I thought, boy, this guy's slick. Or look, look, look at this pastor. Look at this politician. Look at this person. And you just marvel at their ability to just seemingly say the right thing every time they open their mouths in any set of circumstances. And I finally realized that what they were doing had nothing to do with the benefit of the one to whom they were speaking. They were doing it for themselves because these type people function and thrive on the thought that you're convinced that they think you're special. And you think, wow, isn't that great? But the reality is they're setting you up to win you in so that they have leverage upon you so when they need to, they can manipulate you for their purposes. It's a lie, which brings me to the third point, the deception. They are deceivers. There's an impure motive here, and there is deception at work. They are not being straight 
I love what the Hebrew says in the original here. The lips, the flattering lips speak with deception. It says that they speak with one heart and still another. Isn't that something? It's double-heartedness. Much like the double-mindedness of James 1.8. They speak out of this heart, the heart of faithfulness when it works for my purposes. I'll speak out of the heart of faithlessness when I need to go that way. Lying. Before you know it, they are thoroughly within the throes of that which is opposed to the will of God. And by a confluence of these three things, what do they do? Fourthly, they boast. Braggadocia sets in. And they become like those who say in verse 4, we will triumph with our tongues. They, they brag about their own language and the control that they think they have over what they're saying. We own our lips. No one can talk through our lips except us. Uh, who can have mastery over us? We've got this because we've mastered this flattery speak thing. That's more adaptable to my having a sense of of assurance that everything's going to be okay. Not waiting upon the promises of God. Not faithfulness, but turning to faithlessness. And and we've all experienced this. We see it and we see the ways in which the circles in which we move are rife with these kinds of communicative tragedies. Letting us down, but not only so, bringing about such destruction, and such harm. Now, we needed to see all of those specifics in order to focus in on what motivated David's prayer here. And the prayer is a simple one that he exclaims. It's in verse 1a and in verse 3a. Help, Lord! And the principal petition is, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips. He cries out to the Lord that there may be an uprooting of everything that is behind this lying, flattering, deceptive boastfulness. I continue to be amazed at the Christology that is just below the surface in the poetry of Scripture, but particularly the Psalms. I look forward to getting into Dr. O. Palmer Robertson's new book, Christ in the Wisdom Literature. Did you know that this verb that we translate help at the very beginning of the psalm is the same root word from which we get the name Yeshua? Isn't that remarkable? What he's saying is, Savior Yahweh, cut them off. Savior Yahweh, uproot. That's what cut off means. It's the language of Genesis 17.14 where we're told that the covenantally unfaithful will be cut off. They're in trouble. David is asking for this amid these terrible things that move in upon him and make his life miserable and make him think as though he isn't winning. Help, Lord! Do you realize that as he exclaims that prayer, this is here that we might do the same? I think sometimes that we worry about the order of our prayers or how proper they are, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we should be irreverent or flippant before our God, but did you know that all that He has done for us affords us, given the fact that He knows the weakness of our hearts, 
not only the opportunity, but the license to come before Him and cry out, Help! Cut off! Have you ever been that desperate where you've, you've done that? It's what the Puritans refer to as ejaculatory prayers. You just shoot them up. You don't worry about articulation or eloquence. You trust that as Jesus is on the right hand of the Father, He's purifying the prayers. You trust that when the Spirit groans, offers those groanings that cannot be uttered with words, as Romans 8.26 says, that that is in fact happening. And you say, help! And you cry out. You speak to Him with swiftness. He knows the need. And you ask Him to eliminate that which opposes you. Now the eighth verse, I believe, is there in all of its specifics. You'll notice that what He says in verse 8 is really more particular and more blunt language than we find in the first three verses. He's just assured us in verse 7 that the Lord will keep safe and protect His people from these people. Why then would He leave us with the words the wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men? He wants us to remember the swagger that they have as they go about in the world putting what is detestable and what is perverse as a priority, I believe, so that we will keep praying. So that we will never forget that in the midst of these struggles, we have to keep coming back and keep exclaiming with a great sense of urgency, Savior, Yahweh, cut them off. Now, Alan Harmon in his fine commentary on the Psalms says that our pattern has to be that of Jesus who suffered also at the hands of liars, as John 8, 44, 47 indicates, but who also, and then he cites Hebrews 5, 7, offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. He brought Himself low. And the glorious reality is that this one was not delivered from death in order that as He brought victory for His people, He can stand on their behalf. And He can summon His people in the midst of their struggles to cry out to Him, Savior God, Mediator of the New Covenant. Cut all this stuff off. You do that? That's what you have here, and it is here precisely so that you may not feel defeated, but that you may say with Theodore Baker in his 100-year-old translation of the Dutch hymn, We Gather Together, so from the beginning, the fight we were winning. Thou, Lord, was at our side. All glory be Thine. But then secondly, we move to the matter of a perfection to embrace. Notice verse 6. David says, And the words of the Lord are flawless. That literally means they are pure. 
They're without defect. They're perfect. And David again goes to the analogy of fine metals in the process of purification that we mentioned last week. He likens the flawless words of the Lord to silver, refined in a furnace of clay and purified seven times. That's the number of completion. He's saying when you think about the communication of God, Envision silver that has been in the clay furnace and purified seven times and made completely pure, made absolutely perfect. And then understand that this is the way the words of the Lord are. They didn't have to be purified. That from all eternity past, they have been perfect in and of themselves. They've been reliable. And he says this on the heels of the great promise, I will protect them from those who malign in verse 5b. Now, uh, what the NIV that I read, what they've chosen to do there and in verse 7 is to speak of these people or as in verse 5 here, those who malign them to put the emphasis on the people who are the source of the soul consternation for David. But beyond that, in the original, what we really read is, and I I appreciate this very much in verse 5b, God says, I will grant to them the safety for which their soul longs. That it, it gets to the depth that we all have down inside of us this impacted longing that we have relief from those who would oppose us in their faithlessness. That that we yearn deep down for the cutting off of liars and of flatterers and deceptive boasters. And that's the, the perfect word. So he tells you that, and then he reassures you of the veracity of it by informing you that this is a word that is perfect. This is a word that cannot be in any way imperfected the perfection of the Word. But we would be remiss if we stopped there. We need to embrace the perfect Word. We need to understand how ultimately it is the Lord Jesus, the greater David, who is the embodiment of that perfection. I was reading in in 1 Peter 2 this past week, and I was struck how in that entire chapter, so much of what Peter is dealing with there parallels these same themes in the 12th Psalm. For example, he begins 1 Peter 2, and he says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit. Right? That's what's going on in Psalm 12. That's what brings about what David says in that psalm. That's what draws that out of him. Put away slander of every kind like newborn babes. Crave pure spiritual milk. And we believe per the testimony of verses 23 and 25 of 1 Peter 1 that he's talking about the Word of God there. So there's the purity of it. Then what does he do? He goes on in the next section to stress again how it is that the people of God are specifically chosen and do in fact exist in a covenant context. They've been chosen. You are a chosen people Verse 9 of 1 Peter 2, A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, 
But now you are the people of God. You see, there's this exhortation to pursue the perfection of what God has revealed. Then there is this emphasis, this reminder upon the fact that they are His covenant people. They are to respond to Him in chesed because of His chesed. And then He urges them to, in any set of circumstances, submit themselves to every authority so as to serve as a testimony to God's glory of all the things that He has done for His people. He even says in verse 18, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being in those circumstances? And by the way, there are more people in slavery today in the world than at any time in history, mainly through sex trafficking. Can you imagine the sense of, boy, we're really losing if we're trapped in that situation? But He calls God's people, even in the, in the midst of the worst things you can imagine, to wait upon God, to fear and to honor Him, and to accept those circumstances, and to remember that you were called, and because Christ has suffered for you, as He says in verse 21, and has left you an example that you should follow in His steps. And then in verse 22, He quotes Isaiah 53, 9, He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. There is the perfect Christ. There is the Christ whom the author to the Hebrews sets forth as the one perfected in Hebrews 7.28. That is, he did not succumb to temptation, but that he became the perfect keeper of the law to establish the eternal lawfulness of, for all of those who would look to Him and say, Yeshua, cut off your enemy and mine. Jesus is that perfection. And Peter goes on to say, verse 23, When they had hurled their insults at Him, He did not retaliate. When He suffered, He made no threats. Instead, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. This is the perfect Word, the Logos, God incarnate. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in His mouth. There's the perfection as it is in Jesus. And unlike the deceit found in the mouth of the faithless, in His mouth there is no deceit. In His mouth there is pure truth. There is perfection to be embraced. God has said it in Psalm 5b and Psalm 6, and He has shown it in the person and the work of His Son. And it is the troubled ones for the taking so that they may understand that indeed they have in Christ something that surpasses the foolish speak and actions of the faithless. They have something that exceeds this. The great hymnist of the 19th century, Phillips Brooks, who gave us, I believe, O Little Town of Bethlehem and some others, he said, The happiness that comes to believers by Christ are so many 
they cannot be numbered, so great they cannot be measured, so copious that they cannot be defined, so precious that they cannot be valued, all which speaks out the fullness and the all-sufficiency of Christ. He is the perfection that is offered to us even at those times when it feels as though we are the losers. He comes to us and shows us His own perfection. And it is thereby that we know that our God is telling us the truth when He says, I most certainly will grant safety that all of those who look to Me long for in their hearts. But finally... I want us to see a provision to expect. I would suggest to you that verse 5 is really the spine of the psalm. He indicates that the Lord's statement is that because the weak are oppressed and because of the groanings, because their cries of help do come up to Him, that He will arise and He will grant to them the protection that they desire and are so longing for in the depths of their souls. But particularly in that middle portion of verse 5, we find the axis upon which the psalm turns in the words, I will now arise, says the Lord. I remember one of my early instructors telling me that sometimes our doctrine hangs on verb endings. He was speaking there, of course, of the Greek. You know, it's true. You you get in and there's so much that we miss. In this verse, in 5, in in the middle of it, where he says, I will now arise, or literally now I will arise, says the Lord. That is most accurately translated out of the Hebrew. Now I will arise, will say the Lord. There's a future dimension to this. You see... It's in seeing this great will say of Yahweh down the line that enables us to know that even when things do not come quickly in terms of the cutting off of those who are against us, it will nevertheless come in His perfect timing. The will say of God is on the way. And it's this principle that feeds into the next psalm. Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? You see, he's wanting to know, Lord, when is your will say going to arrive? But you see, this is the very simple and yet so profound gem of truth that each of us, wherever we are, whatever we're enduring, can lay hold of and have peace in the moment and be freed from worry because the great will say of the Lord is coming. One of my early spiritual mentors, the Reverend Hal Farnsworth, who was the Reformed University Fellowship campus minister at Mississippi State where I was an undergrad really was the one whom the Lord used to open my eyes to the doctrines of grace and to embrace Reformed theology. He once took his two oldest children, who I believe at that time were about seven and three, out to 
a housing project. They were going to be working and, and laboring with other believers. And they arrived, and there was a woman sitting on the porch in a wheelchair with no legs. And uh, Ben and Elizabeth, being very young, they'd never seen anything quite like this, and they were just sort of staring, you know, as children do. They didn't know what to make of it. And this woman, seeing that in their faces, looked at them, and she said to them, Don't worry, children. Jesus is going to give me a new pair of legs one day real soon. That's a saint who was at peace with the will say of Yahweh. It's not here, but it's coming. But we also have to look at the now of that as well. That's His will say, but what His will say will contain are the words, Now I arise. We've seen this word arise before. It speaks of God emerging in the eyes of men, His coming forth as far as they can see, and releasing His stored blessings upon them. In this case, of course, deliverance from all of the things that molest their spirits in the face of the opposition of the faithless. Now I will arise, will say the Lord. Now. Now is the time. His will say is coming, and what it brings is, now I, now I release to you the fullness of my blessings. Now I free you entirely and eternally from all your sins and sorrows. John Coltrane, the great American saxophonist, had quite a spiritual journey, if you've done any reading on him. He had a from what I can tell, a pretty solid upbringing in the African Episcopal Church. He was taught the Scriptures. He then ventured, as many did in the 60s, into Eastern thought. He married a Muslim woman. But some believe that toward the end of his life, he made a turn and came back around. We'll never know until heaven. But one indication of this was one night, and Os Guinness tells this in his excellent book, The Call, tells his story. Coltrane was performing what I guess was his opus, if you can say that in music, his greatest writing, titled A Supreme Love, 32 minutes on the saxophone. He played through it and he, he did it so perfectly in his own estimation that he didn't think it could be topped. And he walked down off the stage, already an older man, and he set the saxophone down, and he was heard to have uttered the Latin words, nunc dimittis, which as you know is now dismiss. It's the words of the faithful Simeon, the godly man who was so expectant of the Lord Jesus, he longed to see the foretold Messiah, and in Luke 2 Verse 29 and following, He held the baby Jesus and said to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, as You have promised, now dismiss Your servant in peace, for My eyes have seen Your salvation, which You have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to Your people Israel. I can go now. Now dismiss. I've seen what I was waiting on. I can't play this any better than I just played it. 
now dismiss. The great now of God is coming with His will say, my friends, and what it brings is, now I'm done. Now you are perfected. Now there is nothing more involved in your being conformed to the image of My Son. Come, My child, and enter into the full and final deliverance of all of your foes. This is what you have in this ancient song. This is your hope in the face of, boy, we're just fighting a losing battle. You have that exclamatory prayer that He still hears through Yeshua, Savior, Yahweh, cut off the enemy of death from which all of these other sins flow. For He is the One who is perfect and who is the very pure Word of God that men beheld with their eyes. And that's why there's the guarantee of verse 7. Oh, You will keep us safe and protect us. Because what we have to look forward to is a time where God will say, because of the work of Jesus, now come. Now experience full deliverance. From the foolishness of men, the emptiness that has left your soul so parched. Come and have full and final and everlasting communion with me that is pure, and he will free you from that sense of loss. Translation say this to yourself self. Don't worry. Jesus is going to give you the full victory real soon. Let us pray. Father, how weary and well-doing we grow. We wonder if anything is happening. We thank You for the reminder that Not only are you still with those whom you are giving victory in Yeshua, but your will say is coming. And your now I will arise awaits us. Oh Lord, we ask that you hasten that day to our total perfection and our acceptability to you. And in the meantime, give us grace to keep going and to keep pressing, knowing that we are victors in Jesus, our Savior forever. He loved us ere we knew Him, and all our love is due Him, because He plunged us to victory beneath His cleansing flood. Amen.